we're grateful to be here, and we do want to thank you. Over the many, many years, we've been recipients of those cards and notes and and uh, gifts and all kinds of different things that have been sent over the years, and so we do very much appreciate it. And I know that missionaries, obviously overseas, they they do appreciate these things very much. So, so thank you very much. Um, I um, <clears throat> as as was mentioned, we uh, we were sent out with uh, from Grace Community Church in 1978, and um, in Europe. Uh, we've had experience of, of living in two different countries, two very different countries. One, a, a we were in a French-speaking uh, country in, in Belgium for 18, 19 years, and then we moved to the Netherlands, uh, especially in the area of Amsterdam, uh, and lived there for the last 15 years. And um, we've been, um, uh, as I mentioned, I think I mentioned this, that we recently moved back to the United States. And uh, Kathy, uh, I'm going to ask her to tell you why we moved back. So drink that water real quick. And uh... Well, if I talk out of my nose, this will work really well. Uh, um, oops. There were a number of factors that contributed to our deciding to come back. Um, uh, for one thing, our um, visa and work permit situation was um, such that we were allowed to be five years at a time in the Netherlands, and then we needed to leave the country for at least six months to a year. Um, and that was coming up last summer. Um, the to get we had been in the Netherlands on a special uh, work category. Um, and coming back in, a, if we were to come back in again, we would have had to go in a different category, which would have, they, they basically tell you how much money you have to have based on the fact that he has a doctor's degree and was teaching. So they, they say, you know, with this education, you need to be making this much money. So we would have had to raise a lot more support, and it would have mostly gone to the Dutch government for taxes. Um, then another key element is that um, all these years, uh, my sister and her husband have lived near my parents, and my, my father went to be with the Lord about 10 years ago. My mom's 92 now. She lives alone in her own home on a big piece of land out in West Covina, and she's doing quite well. She gets up every morning and goes and pulls weeds for an hour before it gets hot, and she uh, just got her driver's license renewed for five years, so you might want to stay out of the West Covina area. <laughs> no, she actually has it all worked out where she... Um, only drives during the day and never makes any left turns unless there's a left-hand turn lane. So <laughs> her life is very well planned out. Anyway, but, but you know, when someone's 92, um, oh, I was going to say my sister and her husband about a year ago moved to Texas to be near their children. So um, even though our two children are in Southern California, if something happened to my mom, you know, we couldn't expect them to just drop what they're doing and take care of her. So that was another 
um, piece of the puzzle that we really felt God was um, leading us to move back here at this time. So that's that's why. So it's good to be back in a place that has such cheap gas prices, because uh, uh, in Holland we pay about nine dollars a gallon, and uh, so it's. I bought gas today for. Th- uh, coming up here for $3.98, and I thought, wow, this is so cheap. Um, in any case, as Kathy said, the Dutch government, they're, they're, uh, they, uh, they determine a number of things regarding your even your salary and so on, and that's the, that relates to another issue. But uh, living in Europe for 34 years has been very interesting, and uh, the Dutch, as well as other Europeans, they like to... They, they love April Fool's Day. And uh, several years ago, there was a, there was a show, a uh, radio program on the BBC, where they had this astronomer. And the astronomer, um, he, this was, yeah, several years ago, his name was Patrick Moore, and he announced that if you, at 9.47 in the morning, um, there would be a special phenomenon that would take place in the world and especially in the UK. And so he announced that, and what, would ha- what was actually happening was the planet Pluto was passing behind Jupiter and that there was be a gravitational alignment. So he told people on the radio that if you jump exactly at 947, you will sense a floating in the air. And so, uh, actually, the BBC afterwards got hundreds of phone calls of people saying how they were floating in the air. And one lady said that her, her and her 11 guests were floating around their living room and things like that. And um, so, anyway, they, they also one year they did a thing where the Big Ben, you know, the big clock in Europe, that it was going to be going digital. So, uh, they, they like uh, April Fool's jokes over there. But I, I say all that because um, uh, one of the things, one of these fabricated stories, and one of the fabricated stories that goes around here in the United States um, and in other places is that, is that Europe no longer needs the gospel, that it's a Christian place. And I've had Americans tell me that. They've, they've gone over to Europe. They've gone into cathedrals and things like that. They see Christianity. And in any case, um, what I would like to, to, to talk to you about is why Europe and um, why, why people should think about going to Europe as missionaries and why, which would probably be the most of your situations, why you should think about investing in Europe investing in, in, in missionaries in Europe and like to share a little bit about that and talk about uh, some of the reasons there. Now, in, in the world, we see the church is growing, basically. You see this almost everywhere. Um, in the world, there are, I don't know if you know this, there are 510 new churches that are started every single day in the world. And God is at work. God is doing some amazing things. And um, over 3,700 churches, new churches that are starting every week around the world. In one of those places is in Korea, and uh, there are 7,000 churches in Seoul, Korea alone. Did you know that in 1900 there was not one Protestant church in Seoul, Korea? A little over 100 years ago. 
And so you can imagine 7,000 churches now in that, that city alone. When we talk about Africa, in Africa in the 1800, in 1800s, 3% of the continent of Africa was Christian. And uh, today it's over, over 60% Christian. And 34,000, there are 34,000 people who are joining churches on a daily basis in Africa. Now, all those churches are not evangelical churches uh, by no means, but a number of them are uh, Bible-believing evangelical churches. If you go, you think about South America, for instance, Brazil, in 1950, there were, there were almost no, well, there were very few uh, Bible-believing Christians. Today, the population, the Christian population in Brazil is about, about 20%. So you can see how God is uh, moving and working and how the church is growing around the world. And then uh, take China. Uh, They estimate that there are about 10 million new converts every year. And some people believe that China will soon become the largest Christian nation in the world, have the the most number of Christians in it, actually. Probably not percentage-wise, but the number of Christians. Well, What's, what is happening in Europe is, is a whole different picture. And if you look at all the major continents in the world, the church is growing in Asia, it's growing in Africa, uh, growing in South America, but that's not the situation in Europe. And, um, uh, but, you know, hopefully that's why Europe needs missionaries, why we need to invest in Europe, because the church is not growing there. And um, I, I've, since I've been back, I've been quite surprised at some people. Uh, they've said to me, well, you know, why would you go to a place like Amsterdam? You know, it's such an evil place. You know, well, that's why you want to go. <laughs> you know, um, it, it, you want to go there because of that reason, because the gospel is there. So I've been quite surprised about some Americans and some of their thinking on some of these things. So no missionary is going to go into an easy situation, and uh, it ha- brings its own circumstances. One of my one of my friends um, who I worked with for a number of years, he had been a missionary in the Ivory Coast for seven years, and then he was in Belgium with me working in Europe for seven years. And he told me that the, the, the life in Africa was very difficult physically, just living as a missionary day to day. But he said the spiritual aspect was the people were responsive to the gospel. And you could talk to him about spiritual things. And he'd say, I'd go out and preach in, the, in town, and I'd have two or 300 people come and listen to me preach the gospel. He said, here in Europe, the living conditions are very easy, but the spiritual condition is very difficult. And one of my friends said he would go to um, Brussels and preach in the uh, marketplace, and uh, you know, two or three people would listen to him, and then they would they throw tomatoes or apples at him or something like that. So it was a whole different situation. But why, you know, why go to Europe? Um, I'd like to give you a few reasons for that. Uh, key reasons: one is because disciple making in Europe will exalt and glorify God, and that for uh, I know missionaries go to the field for different reasons. But God is wor- worthy of our worship. Uh, God is to be glorified. God is to be honored. And, um, and we do this as, as a missionary with the idea that, you know, as people come to know Jesus Christ, they're going to become worshipers of God. 
So God, God is worthy of, of uh, having people invest in, in Europe and sending missionaries there. And so in many ways, being a missionary is all about God's glory. And um, the, the ultimate worth of salvation is, is uh, you know, not so much what people get out of it, and that's important, but it's what God gets out of it. And God will be honored. God will be glorified. And um, I don't know what you think about it when you think about the book of Revelation. Uh, People, when they talk about the book of Revelation, they talk about a lot of prophetic things and prophetic signs and so on. But I don't know if you realize this, but the book of Revelation is really a book about the end of God's missionary task. Because, as it says in in Revelation here, and behold, a great multitude um, that no one can number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and on the Lamb. And so, uh, and to the Lamb. And so, God is to be worshipped and honored, and that's really what the what the book of Revelation is about, is the end of God's missionary program, really, when you think about it. And 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 and, and people will the Europeans as well as others will bow before the Lord. So in any case, uh, that's one of the reasons. The second reason why uh, Europe is important, because the people of Europe matter to God in becoming his disciples. Um as I mentioned, as a you know, people matter to God. Uh, if they matter to God, they should matter to us. And I mentioned in the in the meeting earlier that this uh, this man was speaking about we don't need to be concerned about Europe. Uh, you know, God's done with Europe. Well, that's not a great way to look at the Great Commission, because the Great Commission goes to all nations and and all peoples. And so I've been uh, quite surprised sometimes that I run into people. I ran into a missions pastor, it uh, uh, wasn't Kevin Edwards, and uh, a while back, and he said, well, I'd never support you going to Europe. I can get 10 of you in the Philippines for what it costs. So they were, he was looking at it purely as a financial investment, and unfortunately, that's the way a lot of churches and people look at, is what can I get out of this, you know? And so, um, in any case, God loves Europeans, and God loves the, the lost, obviously. Uh, there was a man who, who, who died a few years ago. He was a, a missionary in India. His name was Leslie Newbigin. And I'd like to read to you what he said. He spent a number of years in, um, in, uh, in, in India as a missionary, and he said this. He came back to England. He said, during the 12 years since I came back to Britain, and especially since working in an inner city church in Birmingham, I've come to feel that England is as much a foreign mission field today as India was for me in 1936. And that's kind of the way it is in Europe in many ways. There's just a lack of Bible-believing Christians. Um, Matthew talks about uh, the making disciples. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And those nations are really peoples, uh, peoples in Europe as well as other places. So 
this is this is the challenge that we have. The um, let me just show you a little, give you a little idea of what the evangelical movement looks like in certain countries in Europe. Uh, you can see there the percent of evangelicals: uh, Bosnia, Poland, uh, Greece, uh, Croatia. Um, Serbia, Greenland, Belgium. We were, as we mentioned, we were in Belgium. One point one six percent. You know how you meet other Christians sometimes. You run into them on vacation or at the store or whatever. Hey, that guy's a Christian. And start. To, it took us ten years to meet our first Christian in Belgium, and we we were uh, living in an area where you just didn't find Bible believing Christians. And you can find this. That's basically the story throughout Europe. And the churches, on the average, are 50 to 70 people uh, in a church. And um, I get probably at least once a year, twice a year, people would contact me from the United States and say, I I met this guy who's Dutch or Belgian, and he's coming back to Belgium. Can you uh, funnel him to a church like Grace Community Church? You know, there, there is no Grace Community Church in Europe. You know, there are like-minded, some very like-minded churches, but in any case, uh, that's not the way it works in Europe, and it's usually just a, it's very much of a challenge in all the churches there for for one reason or another. So um, there's a big challenge there. Also, um, recently, uh, maybe only a year or so ago, there were some mathematicians got together who have nothing to do with spiritual things, and they have certain mathematical formulas, and they decided to apply them to religion in Europe, or not Europe, but in the world. And they applied their mathematical formulas, and they discovered the way things have gone the last 100 years, there will be nine countries in the world very soon who where religion will basically disappear. And this is, a, it, this is in a mathematical journal. And, you know, my wife knows that I re- spend a lot of time reading mathematical journals. Uh, I don't at all. Uh, but I, I saw this in a Christian magazine, and uh, this is what it said, if I can hear. If the trend continues, this is what they found, these mathematicians. They said religion will basically disappear in Austria, Czech Republic, Canada, Finland, Ireland, New Zealand, the Netherlands, and Switzerland. Now, those are nine countries. How many of those are from Europe? There are seven of them. And so that's, that's kind of the way uh, things are in many ways. So, in any case, God, but God cares about Europeans. Um, one of the, another reason for going to Europe is because Europe can be instrumental for the evangelization of the world. And um, you, we, we know from history that Europe um, has a tremendous influence on the world. And I don't know if you realize that, but uh, living here in the, United Sp- in the United States, but Europe does have a tremendous influence. And when you look at some of the movements that have influenced the world, the Renaissance you know, started in Europe. The Reformation started in Europe. Uh, Nazism, which has spread to different places in the world, uh, liberation theology. Many people believe liberation theology started in South America. Well, it didn't. It started in Belgium, actually. Two South Americans did their studies in theology, 
at a, at a Catholic university in Belgium and took that teaching back to South America. The whole, the whole idea of, of uh, postmodernism and uh, Marxism. So a lot of movements start in Europe and they end up in other places. And obviously in recent times it's been postmodernism. So Europe... Um, its economy, its education, philosophy, a lot of those things end up in other places in the world, and uh, so it's, it's very influential. Another uh, reason why it's important to invest in Europe, to go to Europe, is because there are unique challenges regarding the gospel in Europe. And um, uh, just a couple of those, one of them relates obviously to postmodernism, and I won't go into that in detail, but basically postmodernism is what's true for you may not be true for me, kind of that thinking. And that's that thinking is obviously here in the United States with many, many people. But that, that idea really started to come out of Europe uh, from, from French culture, actually. And it's interesting that one of the founders of this type movement teaches at UC Irvine uh, periodically. And so... In any case, but also another challenge is post-Christianity. And this is obviously a major problem in Europe. And many people, Europe has really in many ways not been evangelized, but it's been Christianized. And there's a big difference between the two. The, uh, let me give you a few examples. In England, what's happened in this post-Christian world is that 10,000 churches have closed since 1960 in the U.K., um, and then also, um, in, by 2020, it's estimated that another 4,000 churches will close while there will be, it's predicted, 1,700 mosques, many of which will arise in former churches. So this is, this is, being, this is taking place in, in England. We move to the Netherlands. I just picked a couple of examples here where we were living uh, since 1970, 927 churches have closed their doors. Another 1,200 will close down over the coming years. And so uh, you see this kind of a, a trend going on. And in the Netherlands, on the average, two churches close their doors weekly in, in Holland. And some of these, uh, most of these are, when I say churches, I'm using it very broadly. You know, they're Catholic churches, but many of them are also uh, reformed churches. Uh, I don't know what you think about reformed theology. I'm very strong on reformed theology. Well, the Netherlands has a history of reformed theology, and those are the churches that are closing their doors. Uh, why? It may sound very strange, but they no longer preach the gospel. We lived in a place where the reformed church uh, in the area, the pastor was a uh, homosexual. You know, and his partner lived in the parish. So this is quite common in the Netherlands and, and in some of the other places in Europe. So um, there are over 250 churches in the Netherlands that are no longer churches. They've become shopping centers, uh, mosques. They've become um, yeah, cultural centers. And some of them become private homes. I don't know if you ever thought about buying a church for a home, but some people have done that. Uh, I think smaller churches, uh, and then the, the there's a church in Amsterdam, Amsterdam called the New Kirk, uh, the New Church, and this is the church that has has crowned 
the, the Dutch kings over the years. It's now, it's a museum today. Uh, so that's kind of where a lot of with the, with the Netherlands. And people just don't know the gospel. Uh, several years ago when we were living in Belgium, um, one of my students from the Bible school I was teaching in, uh, training pastors, he moved into a village next to us over about two or three miles and um, he uh, he's an evangelist basically and so he they moved into town they met the town priest the priest was about 75 years old and um, and he asked my uh, former student and friend uh, so what do you do and he says I'm an evangelist and he said, what's an evangelist? He says, I preach the gospel to people. So the priest, I don't know if he was testing him or what, but he said, so what is the gospel? And so he, my friend explained to him the gospel. And the priest, you know what his reaction was? That is a good message. My church should hear this. And he invited him into the church to preach the gospel. But he said, we only give sermons for 10 minutes long, so whether you're, whether you're done or not, the organist will start playing at 10 minutes. So he preached the gospel in 10 minutes, and he said, this is so good, come back at Easter. So he came back and preached the gospel again at Easter. And out of that, he actually started some uh, evangelistic Bible study. Uh, uh, so uh, that just shows you some of the thinking that's, that's there. It's... it's uh, People are in desperate need of the gospel there. And I remember one, one English guy one time, uh, a, a missionary was talking to him about Jesus, and I heard this story from him, and he, he talked about Jesus, and the guy said, you mean the swear word? He didn't know that Jesus was a real person. And so this is, this is kind of the way it is in, in some cases. Another reason is because the pe- people of Europe need the truth of the gospel. And that's kind of what I what I just mentioned. But uh, in, before we came back, I was involved in an evangelistic Bible study, and I I had about ten people in this study, and um, uh, there were maybe two Christians in it. The others, the idea was not to have Christians in it, but just non Christians. And so, uh, one of the guys. You know, uh, I went out with him, a Dutch guy. We went out to have some coffee later on. And so I was talking to him about the gospel. And he was telling me, he said, you know, uh, last week, he says, I was having, my girlfriend and I were having coffee uh, and um, with, my, with my friend, you know. And my girlfriend told me, he looks just like Santa Claus. Now, that doesn't sound strange to you, but the man they were talking to was dead. Occultism, mysticism, and so there was that going on in in the um, in the study. Um, one person said, "I don't know why Christians are so interested in eternal life. I mean, there's no, you know, you know, what's so interesting about that?" Uh, another another person, this woman, told me she said, uh, "Guess what? This last weekend, I committed my life. I went to Paris. I committed my life." I committed my life to Buddha. Um, I was expecting something else. Uh, and then, uh, you know, another one said, I'll take care of my own sin. You know, I can do that. I don't need Jesus to do that. So these are just kind of some of the challenges. And uh, in Amsterdam, I just read this yesterday. It came from the Israel National News that the largest, most crowded church in Amsterdam is the Church of Scientology. 
Um, there's also an um, interesting person here. There's a man in Holland. He's a pastor of a Dutch Reformed church. He is known as the atheist pastor. He wrote a book uh, a couple years ago. His new book is called Believing in a God that Does Not Exist. Can you imagine uh, having a pastor who doesn't believe in God? And so uh, I, I, I was talking to a, a guy who was studying um, theology at Leiden University. Leiden University is a university, it's about 500 years old, has a great history, it's a great university, and they have a theology department there. And this guy told me, uh, and there are about 30 students in the theology department, he said, as far as I know, I think I'm the only Christian in the school of theology there. And he was talking to one of the uh, women in the theology school. And he said to her, so what are you going to do when you graduate? She says, well, I'm going to become a pastor. He said, a pastor? You're not even a Christian. And she goes, yeah, I know, but, you know, pastor's a nice work and everything. So you have a lot of pastors in Dutch churches who aren't even, aren't even believers. Um, also, another reason is because Europe is, need, is in need of newly planted churches. Um, this, is a, this is a tremendous need in Europe. And uh, when we moved to Belgium, this is pretty, yeah, pretty common throughout Europe, but we moved into an area of Belgium. There were 80,000 people, and there was no Bible-believing church. There are several Catholic churches, but no Bible-believing church for 80,000 people. There was one other church. There was a Protestant church, a liberal Protestant church, but not, not one church in the area. And um, I, uh, I say this because in the United States, there's one church for every 674 people, basically. Uh, I'm not talking about Catholic churches. These are just Protestant churches. I haven't checked out the theology of all the churches, of the other 200,000. Uh, in Ghana, and I bring up Ghana because in Belgium, I work with a lot of African students who are studying there. And uh, there's one church for every 538 people. In Europe, there's one church for every 19,000 people. And I, I just talked to a guy who's going to Ireland, and he said in Ireland, it's about one for every 60,000 people. So it varies a lot uh, throughout Europe, but Europe is in need of, of, of planted churches. Um, so, and this, this is not easy. It's not easy work because you're part of a, uh, it, depending on the country you're in, uh, in Belgium, for instance, it's a Roman Catholic country. So we were always considered to be part of a sect. You're always looked at as a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon and sometimes our children, who were the only Protestants in their public school, there are a few parents who would not, not let their children play with our children because they were Protestants. And so you have that, 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 type, of, that type of thinking. Um, in Holland, it's very different, by the way. And this is, uh, you know, we all talk about the Dutch are so tolerant. Well, there's a good part of that. There's a good aspect of that. The good aspect is we were never considered to be part of a cult or part of a sect. And I even had neighbors. I would talk about, yes, I believe the scriptures. I believe the Bible. And he said, are you, are you one of those kind of evangelical people? And I said, yes. He goes, well, that's really good for you. I'm glad. <laughs> you would never get that reaction in, in Belgium. Belgium, they would 
you know, wonder what's going on in Holland. They were, they're much more open to talk to you, actually, even though they have some very bizarre ideas about things. So, but that's to be expected. You know, when you're dealing with non-believers, you expect bizarre ideas. Um, so, um, Europe also is a is a key place um, where world leaders are being shaped and formed. Now, it used to be the United States. I don't know if you know this, but there are over 800,000 foreign students in Europe. There are less in the United States now. Why, why did that happen? Because it, the United States used to be double the foreign students what it was in Europe. Any, any guesses here? It was 9-11. That changed the whole thing, and they stopped giving visas to many foreign students, so students started going to Europe. Now, in the last two or three years, the United States has opened back up, so there are more people now coming into the United States as students, but, but uh, people want to come to Europe and study, and it's a, just a great, great place to be able to reach university students. And um, I was at a conference just a couple months before we came back, six months or so before we came back, and there was a young woman there, and she was a university student from Brazil. And she, was, she came to Holland to study engineering. And there's a very famous university. It's kind of like the Caltech of Holland. It's called Delft University. And it, and it uh, really trains engineers, especially civil engineers. And uh, um, so she came there to study, and she met the Lord there. And she told me, uh, told us in a group that there were about 40 uh, foreign Christian students on that campus now. And what they're trying to do is try to reach the Dutch students in that university. So foreign students, foreign people are coming to Europe as missionaries. And one of my African students uh, a few years ago, he was sent to Europe to Holland to plant churches. And they've started 18 churches in Holland. And so what many Americans aren't doing, the, 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 Europe, the Africans are doing. And the Africans have a great, uh, great zeal for evangelism. And by the way, one of the professors in that, in that university is an African uh, that, we, that we know who was in our church in Holland and is a professor there and had a real heart for reaching students and other professors there with the gospel. So, uh, an eighth reason why Europe is a key place is, is because it's a great place to reach the Islamic world. Um, I don't know what you think about immigration, but I think it's a wonderful thing. Because without immigration, we would not be able to reach these people for Jesus Christ. Um, I could never go to Saudi Arabia but I'm flying on an airplane, and who's sitting next to me? I said, so, so where are you from? He said, well, I'm from Saudi Arabia. I said, well, what do you do? Oh, I'm a doctor. I'm studying here my specialty. And so we, we talked about uh, different things and so on, and, and uh, I, asked him a, I asked him conversation like, how does Islam, you being a Muslim, affect how you practice medicine? 
And so he told me. And then I was going to give the Christian standpoint, and then the plane landed. So that was the end of the conversation. But I, the point is, is that, that God has opened up lots of opportunities to reach immigrant people. Uh, in Holland, there are over 250,000 Hindus. Amsterdam is like Los Angeles. There are over 175 different ethnic groups uh, in Amsterdam. And uh, you, uh, Europe is not like it was 20 years ago. You see people from all over the world in every city. In London, there are 200 ethnic groups, 300 different languages now in London itself. So uh, it gives a great opportunity to share the gospel, especially with Muslims. And as I mentioned, it's the fastest growing religion in Europe uh, right now, practicing religion. Uh, because many of the Muslims do practice, many of them don't also. A third of European children will be born in Muslim families by 2025. So this is a big challenge for Europe, not only spiritually, but also for the government. And and uh, Brussels has between, they estimate, 17 to 20 percent. Amsterdam, 12 to 20 percent of people. And this these are Muslims praying. This is in Paris. Just during the hours of prayer, a missionary is walking down the street, and he saw these Muslims. The whole street was blocked off, and they're doing their part of their their uh, prayers. One of the five prayers during the day. So this is a this is a great opportunity. Uh, there is a um, in Rotterdam, which is a well known city in Holland. The mayor of Rotterdam is Muslim, and uh, one of the councilmen who is a Muslim. Uh, this is what he said. I'd like to read this to you. This was in the newspaper because uh, people in Holland, many of them don't want Muslims in Holland. And he said this. He said, listen up. We're here to stay. You're the foreigners here, and with Allah on my side, I'm not afraid of anything. Take my advice, convert to Islam, and you will find peace. So, the, so there are many. There are many Muslims. It, it is a it is a um, proselyting religion where other religions are not, such as Hinduism and Buddhism, really. But um, in any case, um, there's a great need there. And recently, um, I received some information with a, 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 a lady that we know. Her and her husband are missionaries in Spain. And uh, she told the story, gave this testimony that there was this man from Morocco. He was 45 years old. His family moved to Spain to establish a new life. And uh, he tried to establish his business there. And um, he, um, he wasn't treated very kindly by the, uh, the Islamic community. In fact, his partner, who was a Muslim, cheated him out of his life savings, $20,000. And the husband and wife, they did not know what to do. And they cried out to God, to Allah, uh, to God, he, he said, uh, cried out to God to, to help us. And, and uh, they, were, they were really desperate, destitute, I had the impression. And they, they knew that there was an evangelical church in the neighborhood. And they said, maybe they will help us. So they went to this little Spanish church of probably 50, 60 people say, can you help us? So this church gave them food, and they actually had some odd jobs they could do, and they were, you know, to keep keep alive, survive. 
And um, this man, he's telling this story uh, uh, later on. And he says that I'm walking down the street in Spain, and I'm walking by a cafe. And he said, God told me to sit down in this cafe. Now, a cafe in Europe, um, they serve uh, 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 they serve beer, alcohol, wine. They, they usually don't serve hard liquor. But, they, but as a Muslim, you would never sit down in a cafe like that. And he, had, he was hesitant to do it, but he said, well, God told me to do it, so I'll do it. So he sits down at a down at a table. He's just sitting there for like ten minutes praying, and our friend Anita walks by him, sees him there, and she thought, "I I, I just feel I need to talk to this man." So she went up to him, and as any woman, you don't go talk to Muslim men. Uh, she went and asked permission if she could sit down and talk to him, and he gave her permission. So she sat down, and she shared the story of the prodigal. And then she shared the gospel with him. And so he listened politely, and she said, would it be okay if my husband and I come to your apartment and show you the Jesus film? I don't know if you know the Jesus film. And he said, so he thought, well, I don't know. Let me talk to my wife. So he went home and said to his wife, this Christian lady wants to show us the, the Jesus film, would it be all right? She gave me her contact and stuff. And she said, the wife said, Christians have treated us much kinder than Muslims have. Let's have him into the house. So they came, they showed the Jesus film, and they started reading the Bible together. And the man discovered many things about Jesus that were very different than the Quran. And so what happened is they committed their lives to Jesus Christ and they're followers of Jesus Christ uh, today. And this just happened, you know, uh, several months ago. And so opportunities like that would never occur uh, if it wasn't, you know, I, I think of God kind of set a, upset the fruit basket, you know, around the world because there are refugees, there are people trying to survive. I've met some of these people in Europe who who are destitute. They've, they've walked across the plains of Africa. They have no food. Uh, they're, they're just trying to, trying to survive. Uh, just uh, amazing. And so, in any case, the, uh, the opportunity is great. So, why send missionaries to Europe? Is there great needs there? Why invest in Europe? And I know many of our missionaries are serving in Europe. And if you're not investing in their lives prayerfully, or financially, maybe it's something that you should be be thinking about. And um, we are, although we are back in the United States now, we continue to be involved in ministry in Europe of training uh, people for the field. And uh, that's kind of what we're involved in right now, um, involved in uh, talking to people, counseling people. I'm, I'm on the phone probably two to four hours a week with young couples in particular from different places in the United States uh, talking to me about the possibility of serving the Lord in Europe and then involved in training people and in the process of developing a training program for missionaries here at Grace Church uh, as, as well as some other places. We continue to be uh, uh, linked to Holland. Uh, we, we just returned from a trip um, there uh, at the seminary in the Netherlands, and um, 
I, Kathy, maybe you could, could you come and take a minute and tell her what you did? I ta- we taught this course on evangelism. Do we have time to do that? Well, we only have a couple minutes. We t- I taught the course on evangelism, and, uh, and Kathy, uh, she organized a whole outreach for the seminary. Yeah, come and just say, take a minute to tell it, okay? Yeah, we had just done some things in the past to, um, to you know, the seminary, even though it's right in a Dutch neighborhood, you can tend to just be focused on your, your books, your studies, and all that stuff. And so um, I really have a heart for reaching out, and so I would organize some things. And so we just did another... Um, like a neighborhood party. We just had uh, potluck. All the neighbors that came brought food, and we had food, and then we had a bunch of really crazy games and um, and dessert and stuff. And it was really good, just really worked out well there. Uh, what I love to see is how God uses that to um there were some students there who were uh, taking a module. they didn't they weren't normally there, but because um, the neighbors had been brought in, they were talking with them. I saw one one fellow in particular spending quite a bit of time answering some spiritual questions with the neighbors. So um, I just enjoy being able to use my little gift in that way to, as part of the body to contribute something. Uh, Kathy's been very instrumental at the seminary of mobilizing the staff and the students to share the gospel with people through different avenues and so on. So uh, anyway, our our ministry continues of training Europeans. So I'll I'll end with that. Thanks, Jill. Thank you very much. Where are you living? Where are we living? We're living in Alaska. No, no, we're not. We're living in Valencia. I got the names mixed up there. Well, I just want to say thank you for coming, but also thank you for serving the Lord for all those years, and we're happy to have you here, and just thrilled, and you know, it's a blessing to have you. Now we're going to pray for the Stallneckers. Lord, we just thank you so much for the Stallneckers, and um, for their service to you for so many years, and just thank you for their heart for Europe, in spite of, um, I'm sure, seeing people with a cold heart towards you many times and um, just pray that you would continue to work there in Europe Lord and soften people's hearts and help them to see their need for you and um, Lord glorify yourself by bringing people to know you and just pray that you would um, also continue to watch over Cecil and Kathy and um, just bless their time here and their ministry and We just pray, Lord, that you would help him to be a great help and encouragement to young people that are just setting out and uh, getting ready to go through the difficulties of trying to evangelize people who are uninterested, Lord. And I just pray that um, you would help Cecil to be a great help and Kathy as well in that and give them wisdom as they also plan a much needed um, course for preparation for our own ministries here at Grace Church. And um, just pray that that would be a great help to the people here and glorifying as well to you, Lord. We just thank you for your goodness to us each and every day. And um, 
just thank you once again um, for showing us the state of the world and and our need of you, Lord. And we just thank you so much that you've chosen to work in our hearts. We pray that you would help us to also evangelize um, those we come in contact with, Lord, and to make an effort maybe to get outside of our Christian circles too and to um, meet other people that don't know you, Lord, we pray. And um, please also have your hand on Kathy's mom. She's old, sounds like she's in very good shape, and we're thankful for that. We just pray that you continue to bless her with good health, if that might be your will. Amen.